it's not what happens to us we can't affect that but it's how we react to it that counts it's how we look at it it's how we see our life hello and welcome to fear itself with me cressida bonus in this podcast i'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear to find out what it can teach us about ourselves and the world around us. We'll discover how fear limits them, how it motivates them, and how they find the courage to face it head-on. But before we begin, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor, Codex Beauty Labs. I don't know about you, but a lot of the time when I'm putting products on my skin, I don't really know how clean the ingredients actually are. Often beauty companies make these bold promises about their ingredients, only to be short on reality. But Codex Beauty Labs, on the other hand, represents what is good in the beauty industry today. What I love about Codex is their transparency and commitment to science. Their pioneering products are composed of clean and meticulously sourced ingredients and have clinically proven skincare benefits. Even more reassuring is that their wonderful founder is an award-winning PhD scientist herself. Simply put... Codex exceeds market expectations in sustainability and cleanliness. Each day, they work towards their mission to blend plant biology and biotech innovation and to create true, long-lasting plant-based biotech beauty. I'm really happy I found these wonderful products, and I highly recommend them. They smell absolutely delicious and make your skin feel silky soft. You can find Codex at codexbeauty.com. My guest today is Ed Jackson, former professional rugby union player and author of the new book, Lucky, a story about overcoming adversity. Ed's career was cut short due to a life-changing spinal injury, but despite being told he may never walk again, Ed has gone on to achieve some amazing feats of strength. In this episode, Ed tells us how his biggest growth and most formative discoveries have come on the other side of fear. He shares a beautifully emotional story about a friend who's inspired him through life and death, and he explains why he feels lucky every single day. Ed starts by telling us where his story begins. I I suppose to set the scene, I I was pretty lucky in that I got to um, follow my boyhood dream. You know, I ended up playing professional rugby after school which was kind of what I wanted to do from from the age of sort of 13 or 14 and I ended up signing for my childhood club Bath and you know I was I was living the dream in a certain respect you know I didn't have the most glittering career but I played in the top leagues in in England and and in Wales for for 10 years and really enjoyed it you know and that was what where my purpose lie you know that's um that was kind of who I was it was my identity I was Ed the rugby player and uh, but then in 2017, I was recovering from a shoulder injury and uh, I went round to a family friend's house back in Bath. And uh, long story short, I effectively um, dived into what I thought was about eight feet of water or at least the deep end. Um, and it turned out to be the shallow end. There was only about three feet of water. And it, because it was a funny shaped pool with a with a rock fall and a waterfall in one end it wasn't so obvious but I made the mistake and um, hit my head pretty hard onto the bottom of the pool and now I, I kind of you know it wasn't the first time I'd hit my head hard on something I'd played rugby for 10 years so it's kind of what you do done for a living but I knew that this was particularly uh, a particularly bad one 
but I just went to stand up. I just hadn't lost consciousness. I went to stand up to check if there was any blood going into the pool and that's when I realised that actually it was something more something more than just a knock to the head because I couldn't move. And um, initially that was obviously very confusing because I've always been able to move um, body parts when I've told them to. Uh, but then very quickly, you know, that, that turned to, that confusion turned to panic because I uh, was in the water and I was underwater and I was looking at the surface and um, I suppose the fear of drowning is quite a primal one and I felt it once before as a child and it was back and this time it was um, pretty intense. Luckily my dad was in the pool and one of my friends and they came over and, and dragged me to the to the surface but I'd lost all movement and sensation from the shoulders down and um, what I'd done is I dislocated the two vertebrae at the bottom of my neck C6 and C7 and the disc in between the two because I'd hit myself so hard on the top of the head had, had exploded and cut my spinal cord in half so I was in a very serious position I think at the time I was in shock because I was completely conscious and with it I just couldn't move things and because your spinal cord controls just more than just your movement um I didn't have any sensation either so I just felt like a floating head but that meant I didn't have any pain so it was a very strange time my dad though being a retired doctor he he knew that I was in a very vulnerable situation between there and getting to the hospital or getting into surgery because my spinal cord was cut in half and because my neck was still dislocated any wrong movements um could have been fatal and and actually I did have to be resuscitated three times in the ambulance so that puts quite a different spin on things like I I they actually took a year for my parents to uh, tell me that when I was in the ambulance I thought it just took 15 minutes to get to hospital and I was a bit sleepy but yeah I was resuscitated three times and the journey took two and a half hours so I can only only imagine what was going through my parents head who was waiting at the hospital at the other end but I made it there and I had a and underwent a seven hour operation to realign my spine um put put a metal metal cage in there and the next thing I I knew I woke up woke up in intensive care when when you're telling this story, because I suppose you at the moment you you're telling it a lot to to talk about your book, is it difficult to sort of relive those memories? Um, no, actually, um, I think probably because of what's transpired since, partly. But actually, I never really had any issue with thinking back to the moment even from the start when I was in hospital and actually that was probably my problem I was for a long time I was just going over that moment and the, the moments leading up to it over and over and over and over again in my head thinking what could I have done differently but I never had a feeling of sort of it never made me uneasy in fact in fact I actually ended up um, pretty quickly after I left hospital I actually ended up going and getting straight back in the pool because I wanted to I wanted to see if I had any of those sort of reactions towards it and if there was something hidden or buried there that I needed to sort out but there wasn't and I actually went on to do um, quite a lot of my rehab in that same pool that I broke my neck in. Oh really? Yeah. And as you lay in your hospital bed because you're in hospital for a really long time after the surgery I just imagine imagine like so many fears must have been racing through your mind was there one which was particularly dominant I think it was just the uncertainty. I know it's quite a broad thing to say, but it was just the uncertainty of where my life was going to go. I think the nature of uncertainty is it brings on anxiety, you know, and 
I spent most of my the nights just awake staring at the ceiling thinking you know am I ever going to walk again am I ever going to be independent again what's going to happen to my relationship what's going to happen to my job and it was just not knowing what the future held and the fact that it was kind of out of my hands as well it wasn't necessarily just going to be down to effort you know a lot of it was was going to be down to luck and what neurologically what I was left to work with but also I was worried about what other people how other people might react and how this injury and and my situation might impact other people in my life you know if I wasn't going to be independent then that's not just going to affect me it's going to affect anyone who has to care for me as well so that was a massive that was a massive fear early on and and um I think you know I'm still in a position where I'm uncertain what the future holds but at that time it was the options were pretty uh, were pretty bleak so that was was quite scary. Yeah because you said that when this happened to you it wasn't just you that it was happening to it was your family and you were um, supposedly getting married at the time to your fiance and so I wonder how they responded to that. I think at the at the start the first five or six days I was just kind of thinking about me actually and and I was just feeling I was in that sort of victim mindset of poor me you know why has this happened to me I don't deserve this and ironically it wasn't until the surgeon came in after sort of seven days and said look we've done all of your Asia tests which is the American spinal injury assessment and the results are showing that you're almost definitely not going to walk again but hopefully you'll get use of your arms back so that you can use a wheelchair that I realized it wasn't just about me and I realized that actually there was other people involved in this and that actually gave me the motivation and the strength to stop feeling playing the victim and I said to myself you know in six months time or a year's time if I look back and I'm still in a wheelchair or I'm not independent but I know I've done everything I could have then I'll be able to live with myself but if I haven't and I'm affecting other people's lives as well I won't be able to take that you know that's not fair on them so I just that's what sparked me putting everything I could into into my rehab it was actually the external motivators rather than just the internal motivators it was that change of why I wanted to get better and for me that was doing it for other people and and that was pretty formative moment um, early on because it's and ironically you know most people when they're told they're not going to walk again that's the crushing moment but for me that was the kind of awakening moment actually because mm. I suppose you have two choices and I'm sure a lot of people go down that road of just thinking oh I'm going to give up or you have that choice to motivate yourself and feel like you know, defeat just simply is not an option. And I love in your book when you, you're saying, you're like willing your big toe to move and kind of talking to it, shouting to it, apologising <laughs> at it. So it felt feels like that for you, in your mind, you just had that strength to say, you know, it's, this is just not going to defeat me. Yeah, I think, you know, I... At that at that time, I had done no research into anything like psychology or philosophy and the link between the mind and the body. But the fascinating thing's been the the process that I've went I went through from waking up day one in intensive care to what I'm doing today. I've now spent a lot of time researching and trying to understand, and the processes I went through and the mental processes are all explainable. And 
people either go one way or the other, like you said, you know, it's fight or flight. And if someone had told me that I was going to react the way I did before the accident, I wouldn't have believed them. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, how could you do that? You know, I couldn't do that. But people don't give themselves enough credit for what they can and can't do until you don't know what you're capable of until your back's against the wall. And I'm not sitting here and saying I made that decision. It was such a brave decision to react like that. It was just the way my mind reacted. You know, and a lot of that is down to probably genetics and external factors as well. There's a lot of luck involved. Um, and you have you know either active agents or passive victims in psychology and the active agents are the people who go right I've got to do something about this this is the situation I've got to move forward how do I move forward what's the best best path and the passive victim is the person like I said I was initially was you know this is happening to me you know it's not fair it's someone else's fault I don't deserve this and you can move from one to the other and and it was that doctor telling me that I couldn't do it and me realizing changing my why my purpose for getting better onto other people that moved me from that victim mindset to be in that sort of acting active agent mindset and that's when things started to happen and and like I said if I told you that I knew I was going to be back you know uh, on my feet albeit limping around if I if I told you I was going to recover to the extent I had and I always knew that I would be lying you know at the start I was just trying to get to the point where I could be independent so that I could use a wheelchair so that I didn't impact other people's lives and if someone had offered me that towards the beginning of my recovery I would have taken it 100% but of course the goalpost moves move as as you move forward as well so I managed to progress a fair bit further sorry the courage really is the mental strength and turning your turning negative even like negative thoughts when you're in the hospital to positive thoughts for me just just understanding that takes a huge amount of of mental courage and I, I read that Christopher Reeve the the actor he wanted to give up and he was thinking about taking his own life and then and he was in hospital and then the actor Robin Williams came in and made him laugh and he just the just the laughter made him think oh it's worth living and then he had a mantra didn't he and you said it in your book but it was really great <laughs> it was something like um get busy living get busy living and 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 then he decided to do that and that's just like one thought yeah i i think um i think it's a massive part of people's mindset is what they've got to live for and when I was in the spinal unit, I remember looking around and and realizing how lucky I was to have family and friends in there every day with me because those are things that I took for granted. But actually, there was a lot of people in there who didn't have any visitors for like the three months I was there. And you could see they would just they didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. They didn't want to try and make any progress. And who would blame them? Like they they didn't have anything to get better for. And I realized, you know, like you said. Christopher Reeves and Robin Williams you know and and laughing and and realizing that it doesn't matter if life is going to be a lot harder um, because of your physical limitations but it doesn't matter because life is lived through your mind and if you can be happy again if you can feel that laughter and that joy again then it's worth carrying on for and I had all these amazing friends and amazing people around me and I really wanted to get better because I had a lot to get better for and and now I never take those things for granted like my family my friends you know the just having food on the table you know all of those things that you just take you know that 
like I said, you take for granted before, the things, the day-to-day things that you never noticed are actually the things that when they're taking away, taken all taken away, you start to realise and that just moves your base level of happiness up quite a lot. And that was a big, you know, that's something I noticed a lot in hospital and being in hospital for four months and being on neuro wards where you have varying levels of injury and family situations from patient to patient. One of the biggest correlations towards recovery to a certain extent but more than nothing people's mindset was what did they have to get better for and their support network that was around them so that mind body link was so important you know it sounds like I'm sat here saying you know the the start was tough first few days but actually then I made this realization and it was all plain sailing and that's just not true you know I had those thoughts at night you know I don't want to be here anymore and and it was understanding that those thoughts are completely normal in situations and I think I'd been quite lucky up to that point in my life that I had been quite a positive person I got angry like everyone else and I got you know upset from time to time but I'd never had really dark thoughts like that and it scared me and it was also a situation that I didn't want to talk to my family about it I didn't want to upset people that I knew and I loved and and it wasn't until I actually started speaking to people who I didn't really know and who um, had contacted me who had been through things before that I realized you know this is normal and this is okay and actually having those dark thoughts is completely normal it's how do you rationalize them and how do you move forward through them and that was a huge moment in my life and something that I've now taken with me Um, taken forward with me you know being able to rationalize my thoughts better understand them and see them from a different perspective to then move forward rather than holding them back and pushing them back and trying to resist them being there in the first place and when you had those thoughts when you're in hospital you said you were staring at the ceiling all the time and where where did your mind go to like how did you distract yourself from the reality of the situation I had a lot of different sort of means of distraction and and I think you mentioned before around sort of turning things into a positive and and you know that's reframing which is an actual technique used in like NLP for example of course I didn't know that at the time but it is you know trying to put positive spins on things and my distraction tactics involved a lot to do was a lot was dark humor so basically taking the piss out of myself and my situation and my friends were very good at helping me do that being rugby players um Mm -hmm. but that made a big difference being able to normalize normalize what was effectively a dark situation because by focusing on the negatives and how bad things were it would only make things worse that wasn't going to help the situation so if we could laugh about about it and bring some joy into it it really did help but having said that at night when everyone leaves you know and you are just left with your thoughts it came down to things like focusing on you know I would listen to podcasts audiobooks music writing became a massive thing for me I started a blog and just you know offloading things out of my mind when if I did have worries I learned to accept them and then move them on Um, I also had a couple of books that were sent to me quite early on and one of them being um, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday which was about stoicism something that I had Never really explored before, but it really helped me in in the early days around letting go of the things that I can't affect and just seeing a clear path forward because I was living a lot of my time, as you said, staring at the ceiling, thinking about what I could have done differently to not dive in the shallow end of the pool 
or where I was going to end up in five or ten years' time, both of which I could not affect by thinking about them. So understanding the science and the philosophy behind those processes really helped me try and instill them in my thinking. But having said that, it's a lot easier said than done and it's been a four-year process and it's still an ongoing process to get better at that. I wanted to just go back to your childhood and just talk a little about your childhood fears. You said you were quite shy. How did that shyness manifest itself? I was born quite big and and suppose quite athletic, but I was into individual sports, so swimming and tennis, and I got quite good from quite a young age and I played them a lot. So I had a lot of hours all my so- when other other kids are socializing outside of school, I was playing sport, but individual sports by myself and it wasn't until I ended my parents ended up getting splitting up when I was 13 and I was then sent to boarding school that I realized how socially anxious I was you know all of a sudden I was going to have to be in a a boarding house with 50 other boys all of which were older than me or the majority of which were older than me because I was going into the youngest year and it was absolutely absolutely terrifying and I think I basically hid for the for the start I'd gone there on you know I was on a swimming scholarship so I spent most of my time in the pool which was great because my head was underwater but when push came to shove you can't avoid people forever especially in a boarding house and I had to learn to survive really um, but bit by bit actually that started uncovering I realized to survive you had to fit in so then I had to make relationships with people and it started to peel away those layers of the person I thought that I was. And I think it wasn't that I changed into a more sociable person. I think I just, situationally, that had been hidden before. And I st- was forced into a situation where I couldn't be like that anymore. And I had to remove the layers and sort of come out of my shell a bit. Yeah, I was desperately shy when I went to school and still sometimes can be very shy and um, I always wondered at school why I wasn't like so many of the other girls that were really loud and confident Um, and I just so wanted to be like that and I just wasn't and it wasn't until I found drama that I really started to come out of my shell and when you were saying that I was thinking was it was also maybe a reason when you came really started to Excel was that rugby that that helped that confidence yeah definitely I think rugby was really formative in that I mean I because I was at a school which took swimming very seriously I was 14 and I was doing sort of 10 hours a week and that was starting at five o'clock in the morning before school and I quite quickly when I started to make friends in my year group from being in a boarding house I quite quickly realized that I didn't want to do that anymore and I wanted to do what they were doing so I started playing rugby and on a rugby pitch, it's 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 a lot harder to be an introvert because it's a team sport, it's a physical sport, and you know there are introverts, of course, but that it did really bring me out my shell quite a lot. It gave me a lot more confidence. I started because I was quite good at it. I started getting, you know, looked up to on the on the pitch, um, and that gave me a lot of positive affirmation and reassured me. And it certainly helped me come out of my shelf between the ages sort of 14 and 16. And I think sport can be very good for that. Uh, but in on the flip side, I think it was also the reason I was so socially anxious to a certain extent from a younger age because I was doing individual sports. And it was my during my social time where the other kids might be out mixing with each other that 
you know, I didn't have that from a from sort of the age of six to fourteen. But then all of a sudden, I'm on a pitch with fifteen other boys, and and that started coming through. And you said that you feared life in the real world, what life after sport would look like. Why did that worry you? So, when I, you know, this is a common problem for sports people. And I can only speak from a rugby perspective, having been a rugby player for so long, but also now sitting on the board of trustees for Restart, which is the charity that looks after all the professional play rugby players in England. Professional sport is one of those things that you get put into as a young age. So you probably find out you're good enough at 14 or 15, most professional athletes, or they think they find out they're good enough that they've got a chance to make it professional. And it's weird because it's the one industry where if you don't do it, then it's it's seen as a bit of a, you know, you're spitting in the face of everyone else who wants to do it. So you don't have, you're almost not given the option. And the thing is with professional sports people, they are a completely wide, complete wide array of characters. They just might be maybe a little bit more coordinated or a little bit more athletically gifted than the other kid. And then from that stage, they're told, right, that's what you're doing. So effectively, in professional sport, you end up with someone who might be, you know, an artist in their mind, but they've just been from a 15, they've been told that's what they're going to do. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're they're in a job which molds them and they have to be a certain way. They've also got criticism coming from the outside because they're not playing well. They've got the pressures of moving clubs all the time. They've got selection, all of this stuff. And they're going, hang on a minute, I just want to I just want to paint nice paintings. That's all I've ever wanted to do. And all of a sudden I'm in this situation. So that can cause issues in the mental health space. But for me, I always felt like when I was playing that that was my purpose. Like I had found it. It was like, yes, this is what I need to do. And then coming out the other side, when I, especially when I got injured, but it happened before, you know, the thought of life after rugby was terrifying because I was like how am I going to get on in the real world like where where are there's no transferable skills here which of course is wrong but that's what that's how you feel it's not like you can go from you know you lose your job and insurance and you go into another sector of finance and a lot of the stuff you've learned at uni is is something that you can tag across the one sure thing about professional sport is that it will end at quite a young age in the scheme of things in your life. You know, you're very lucky to make it past the age of 30 as a rugby player, for example. So there's going to be a big transition and you're going to have to stay, take a step back, certainly in terms of salary, but in terms of what your sort of public affirmation and social status and all of these sorts of things. It feels like you're reset to the start and it, and it causes a lot of issues. And I think that was something that I was worried about the whole time. So it was one of the first things I thought of when I woke up in hospital and I knew straight away that that was the end of my rugby career. And it was like, oh no, what am I going to do now? Many people have seen you on Channel 4 reporting on rugby. How did that feel in the early days moving from the pitch to the screen? Was it a big transition? It's been a massive adjustment and it's just been, I feel so lucky to be still involved in the sport and because so few players get that opportunity but also it's been hard at times to be pitch side at rugby matches quite a lot when sometimes you'd want to still be out there but at the same time it's been amazing because there's so many parallels between between producing tv for a game like i'm not producer but in, in, in terms of the team producing a tv show for the game or live tv you know it's a massive team effort you know you 
from you you know you know producers directors cameramen from from the top down you've all got to play your part and do it well for the end result to be good and I think that's an amazing feeling when you're all pulling in one direction and you do your bit but also the pressure involved especially when it's live tv I mean I've been just as scared if not I've been more scared um when the red light comes on the camera and you know you're live than I did playing rugby because that rugby was in my was within my comfort zone it was what I'd always done from my, when I was a young kid so even if you've got 60,000 people screaming at you you're kind of you're nervous yeah but you're like I know what I'm doing this journey's been like I don't actually have a clue what I'm doing but I'm just gonna go for it because you know it's um life's too short and I think that's probably one of the benefits I've taken from realizing how short life can be and realizing that what's the worst that can happen now you know I never would have thought that I could speak in front of people or especially not you know do live television and now I realize that actually I'm way more capable than I thought I was in other areas I think we pit with we're very quick to pigeonhole ourselves I was Ed, Ed the rugby player. I can't do. I can't be Ed the TV person or Ed the Ed the author. That's ridiculous. But actually, until we try things, we don't know, and we're all a lot more capable than we thought. And it's been a really enjoyable process, actually. And I think seeing progress in your life and measurable progress in your life is a really important key to mental positive mental health. And that's one area because it's new to me that that I'm seeing that at the moment and is is keeping me sort of driven and motivated. And you've, you've spoken a bit about having expectations that, and expectations I think can sometimes be quite quite dangerous. And you said that, that when the doctors told you that you weren't going to walk again, you said your exact words were bollocks to that, which I loved, which I loved reading. <laughs> but can you tell us about all the ways that you've far surpassed those, those expectations? the expectations for me were actually quite difficult at the beginning because people were saying oh you know you'll be you're gonna be okay because that they want to say that because they don't know what else to say and they'll be like don't worry if anyone can do it you can do it and um I'm sure you'll be fine but actually I found that even though I knew that was coming from a good place it was putting a lot of pressure on and I felt well what if I'm not going to be fine you know what if I'm not going to pull through this you know am I just going to be letting everyone down and when the doctor told me, okay, you're not going to walk again, or you're most likely not going to walk again, it was actually kind of a relief, because I think we'd all been thinking it, but no one would say it. And I was like, right, now I've got someone telling me I can't do something rather than I can do something. And exactly that, it's easy to go bollocks to that and actually to motivate yourself to move forward. And I think professional sport might have helped me or just being quite stubborn in, in certain respects. And, and obviously not every approach works the same because everyone's different but that really helped and I, but actually I found and I continue to find that a hard thing to deal with is living up to expectations and I understand that people want to give you praise or credit or say like or reassure you that because of your the way you are you're going to be going to be fine or and this isn't just with physical you know overcoming the injury this has been afterwards you know don't worry you'll be great on tv or and it's like actually that just adds loads of pressure even though it's said that it's meant reassuringly and and I think now that I've managed to overcome this spinal cord injury and you know not not physically I'm still very much disabled 
although I'm very much independent and obviously doing a lot of lot of things that I never dreamt I would have been able to do I think because I've overcome that people are like oh well now you now you're going to do this or you'll make a success of that I'm like well hang on a minute it's it's uh, it's not as simple as that you know it yes I've managed to do this one thing but doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to do another and and I do feel that pressure I suppose sometimes of not being able to live up to that but at the same time it keeps me motivated I suppose and I think without those that expectation maybe I wouldn't drive as hard drive as hard towards stuff as I do and I feel now that if I don't have that imposter syndrome feeling which is a horrible one but I feel like if I'm doing something and I don't feel like oh I'm going to get found out because I'm you know which I feel like I do every time I'm on TV for example then maybe I'm not doing the stuff that's really going to make drive me forward and and staying in my comfort zone isn't really going to give me purpose and 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 help me move towards a higher target so it's kind of a double-edged sword and I love that you've called your book lucky because when I first heard about your story and I read lucky I was like oh that's so interesting I wonder why why it's he's called lucky and by the way Ed we share the same number eight being our lucky number yeah that's my that's my (laughs) lucky number too but can you just tell us why why you did call it lucky? Well, it wasn't until the um so this was born out of a blog that I kept when I was in hospital and it was um the process of coming up with that blog was a uh, was a difficult one. It was voice notes to start with of me just offloading stuff, a personal diary so I could get to sleep. And one day I woke up and my mate was reading through all my voice notes as they do your personal diary and they but they but then him and my my then fiance now wife explained to me you know this could really help someone one day you know it's about life in hospital it was pretty much bearing all at the time but I was against that you know I, I didn't want to I would innately I didn't want to show any weakness I was a rug, professional rugby player and we had kind of been as a, you know it's why there's a lot of issues with mental health especially within young males my demographic you know it's the biggest killer of men under 40 is suicide because they don't feel like they can talk about their problems and for me that was compounded by the fact I played a sport that was told we were told to never show any weakness so I thought by being vulnerable you know that was weakness and I didn't want to do it didn't want to show it but they said you know this might help someone one day so I did I'd refused to look at the responses but then after a week or so Lois showed me them and she there was 10,000 people reading it which of course terrified me and wanted to not put anything else out but I carried on and and it was a day-by-day account of someone going through a life-changing injury or, or time or moment and the weird thing is when I was approached by a publisher who had compiled the blogs and said look we'd love for you to write a book you know, weave the, weave a narrative through and t- expand on the story, and also a lot of the blogs I was writing at the time, I knew my my parents and my wife, my fiance were reading them, and I didn't want to upset them. So the book elaborates on everything, and I suppose gives an even more honest account. But I'd written the word lucky forty seven times in the first six months, really, which they told me, and I was like, what, <laughs> like. And I just found that as a really a really interesting observation. So I sort of went back through everything and pondered that thought. And it came down to, it's come down to, I think, a defense mechanism of reframing situations. But it was became such a subconscious defense mechanism to look after my own mind that it's ingrained in me as a natural thing that I do. And I feel very fortunate about 
everything that happens in my life now, even though if someone describes it in a different way, I can understand why they might say it was the opposite. And it's that whole perspective piece, you know, it's not what happens to us, we can't affect that, but it's how we react to it that counts. It's how we look at it, it's how we see our life that makes a difference. And I chose to see myself as lucky rather than unlucky. You know, I was lucky I didn't drown in the pool. I was lucky I had, um, I still had some of my spinal cord attached so I could make some sort of recovery rather than I was unlucky that I broke my neck and I was unlucky. And to start with, I think that was a completely unconscious decision as a defense mechanism from my brain. But it's something that's now been instilled in me and I do really feel much higher levels of positivity on average from day to day than I ever did when I was a professional rugby player before. So it was just um, a bizarre observation, but I think a poignant enough one to deserve the title of the book. It's really interesting when you say that a lot of sports people, they suppress their emotions and their feelings because I've heard that a lot before. And you said that one of your most courageous moments was actually coming out about your mental health and saying, actually, no, I, you know, I am struggling. And you also said that all my growth has happened on the other side of fear. Yeah, I think that that's quite an important one, because as humans, we are um, we innately avoid situations that can put us in that can make us vulnerable we look for safety and um, we don't like uncertainty we want true outcomes and I was forced into a situation where I didn't have that possibility I was forced into that uncomfortable situation and it's happened a couple of times in my life before and you think the world's going to end at the time and you think this terrible how can anything positive come from this but for some reason after those big changes it's always when I've found out more about myself I've rediscovered who I really am what I really want in life what truly makes me happy another example would be when I was younger I played three years at my childhood club at Bath out of school which was like a massive thing for me I was captain of my age group for England at rugby everything was going so smoothly and then I had two recurring shoulder injuries that meant that I almost retired at 21. I then signed for I was persuaded to carry on Um, I thought I might I'll give one more year a chance but it was in the lower leagues for a place called Doncaster up north it was a bit of a culture shock bit of a change from the boy from Bath but all of a sudden I was playing every week and I thought it was the worst thing that could have possibly happened to me but I spent a season playing every week whereas before I was at a big club where I wasn't getting much game time and that really kick-started my career and set me on the on path to have a good career off the back of that. So that was a positive thing coming out of what I thought was a negative a negative situation and it's happened again from from my accident and I've learned that now and there's a difference between doing something courageous and being brave and being stupid. Obviously, if you've got nerves in your belly because a train's coming and they doesn't want you to jump in front of it, then that's probably a good nerve fear. That's probably a good reaction to listen to. But at the same time, a lot of things that make us nervous and tingly and want what make us want to shy away from from things like public speaking, for example, is a common one for people. You know who, you know, might be the first time they do it is when they've got to do a best man speech or or at their own wedding. That feeling of nerves, even though you know it's the right thing, your body's telling you don't do it because there's a chance you might mess up. That is a sign of growth for me, I think. That's your body telling you there's an opportunity here. If you overcome those nerves and you do that thing, you can move whatever it is outside of your comfort zone 
into your comfort zone and grow as a person because if we always do the stuff that we're comfortable with we're just going to end up in the same place we're not going to move forward so it's finding that balance and just being brave really being brave to take things on because you know it's right in your gut even if your head's telling telling you don't do it and speaking about being brave you've now climbed mountains and doing all sorts like raising money for charity and you've set one up yourself are those things the kind of things that you want to go carry on in the future like are you you, you know you're planning any more kind of things like climbing other mountains or doing things like that yeah for sure I mean the charity is where I spend 90% of my my energy I'm very lucky that with the tv work that I do with the rugby and with the bit of public speaking that I do it's not very time restrictive so I can donate my time to the charity and I think that was born out of feeling some use coming out of my injury for the first time it was from the blog but then it was from setting myself the challenge of climbing Snowdon which is the highest mountain in Wales after a year so I was still in my wheelchair um, most of the time I was sort of walking the most I'd walked was probably sort of half a mile but I set myself the challenge of climbing Snowdon after 12 months and that was to repay restart which for the charity that supported me since I left hospital but also to hopefully inspire some other people who in hospital who'd been given a guarded or negative prognosis that they too potentially could overcome you know their situation or at least go further than they th- than they were being told and I did I climbed it took 9 hours I opened it up to anyone who wanted to come and join in on social media and and I thought a couple of people might turn up um but 70 people turned up that I didn't even know and we had this just a most amazing day climbing and sharing our stories with strangers and opening up. And it was so healing for me personally as well. Um, and I saw the impact it had on others that I thought, right, there's something in this. Um, and I went on to climb another mountain and I was just pushing myself, I suppose, as a focus for my rehab, but also to raise more money for charity. And we were raising money for all these amazing charities back home. But I looked around at the impact it was having on everyone climbing these mountains together and sharing their stories. And I thought, you know, the real power is actually getting people out here to do this. The real formative stuff's happening on the mountain. So that was where I came up with the idea of the charity, Millimetres to Mountains, um, that I've set up. Me and my wife run with one of my other friends. And uh, we basically take people who are going through mental health issues because of trauma that's happened in their life, whether that's physical trauma like me or mental trauma. So we've taken people away with PTSD or because of bereavements to experience the the sort of healing powers of the outdoors and taking on challenges and being with like minded people and sharing their stories. But then we don't just say goodbye to them. Then I know that that's the catalyst for change. But for me, really being able to progress and cement that change was because of my support network so we offer them that too as as much as we can so we'll fund for three years life coaching retraining therapy to hopefully set them on a better path in life and and I think I'd got to a point after a few months and and of feeling so useless and everyone having to do me like do do things for me like feed me wash me um and just feeling very sort of hopeless to then feeling like I could have a positive impact that was a really powerful rewarding feeling so yeah we've got eight beneficiaries this year that we're taking away all over the world we're going to the Alps to Iceland we're going to Nepal hopefully and personally I am going to try and become the first walking quadriplegic to climb climb Mont Blanc in September um, wow. with the help of Berghaus which are, which uh, amazing um, brand who I'm an ambassador 
with now so we're coming up with loads of kit adaptations to try and make the outdoors more accessible but i'm a big sort of believer in in the healing powers of of nature and and being outdoors and challenging yourself so i've got my personal missions in terms of mountains but my biggest focus um is the charity and on the media side uh i'm off to the paralympics in tokyo hopefully again oh yes i saw that that would be amazing wow (laughs) yeah which will be which will be incredible you know just to be around all the paralympians but also a slightly different step up and challenge for me to actually be a presenter and an anchor in not just rugby which is something I know very well you know you haven't just got all these different nations and all these different sports but you've got 12 at least 12 categories within each sport so it's going to be like doing a degree um, yeah. I think studying <laughs> for it but you know, another challenge and all these weird and wonderful ways that life seems to be twisting and I think if I just keep approaching them positively and appreciating where I've come from and and going with the right mindset and being brave and taking on things that make me nervous things just seem to be uh happening for the best at the moment yeah how amazing Ed I really wanted to ask you about Tom Maynard because in your book you said you've dedicated it to him because he gives you the strength to carry on can you tell us a bit more about him yeah so um when I first went to boarding school uh, as a shy 13 year old I was put in a room with a big Welsh kid called Tom and we were kind of inseparable ever since you know I spent five years in a boarding house with him through our most formative years he went on to become a professional cricketer and I went on to become a professional rugby player we actually played both sports to a similar level to to a certain age and then he was pretty much like I'll have a go at cricket you have a go at rugby but we were very similar. We were joined at the hip. We used to get in a lot of trouble together, but we always, you know, in just, yeah, he was more, he was more like a brother to me because, because we grew up together and we spent so much time through those formative years at boarding school. And then um, in our early 20s, uh, 23, he sadly died in an accident and it was pretty sudden and a massive shock. Um, I remember being in Croatia at the time, actually on holiday, and I got the call from his sister and then I just blacked out and I don't remember anything afterwards, but Lois, my, she was my girlfriend at the time. She, uh, now wife, she found me sat fully clothed in the shower, just sort of staring at the floor. And, and it was the hardest thing I'd ever experienced in terms of trauma in my life up to that point. Um, um a huge sense of, you know, loss, but I went, I, we flew straight home. We had to fly via like two different airports through Europe and just went to be with his family and, and I remember thinking, you know, I don't know how I'm ever going to get through this at the time. And then further down the line, I just, you know, you kind of go into action mode. We got all our friends together and the funeral came and I started, I went through a sort of process of feeling angry about it, um, about all the things I was going to miss out on with him. But then I remember waiting to feel really you know, I've gone through periods of obviously sadness, but waiting for it to hit me and really hurt me and, and me to hit a big depressive episode. And I was waiting, I was waiting. And I remember just realizing, I know this is going to sound a bit bit out there, but he used to come to me in my dreams quite a lot. And it, at, to start with, it was just dreaming about, you know, stuff we used to do. And then I used to have conversations with him in my dreams. And I didn't, I don't really tell you that to anyone because I've told, spoken to Kerry's sister about it, but actually 
he was helping me a lot and then he dif- dif- disappeared in my dreams um not not so often it was only now and again until i woke up in the spinal unit and he was the first person i thought of and i remember thinking um well that was 5 years ago and that was way worse than this because i've woken up and i was like even if i can't move again it won't be as bad as losing tom and i managed to get through that not get over it but get through that so if I can get through that, I can get through this, like mentally. So at the time, people were saying to me, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and all of those sorts of things. And don't worry, this makes me more resilient. And you're like, yeah, whatever. You know, that's what people say to make you feel better. This there can, can't be any positives to come out of this situation. And it wasn't until my back was against the wall again that I realized, wow, he had made me stronger and he was really helping. And I've got this stupid tattoo on my arm. The, Tom had a few stupid tattoos and there was three of us at school who were best mates and he wanted to get us all to get a tattoo from the age of about 15 where it would symbolise the three of us. And f- first of all, he wanted us to all get a tripod, like literally a camera tripod picture on our arm. We were just like, no way, I'm not getting a tattoo, Tom. And then he came up, he's like, guys, I found this great Russian army saying, it means brothers in arms, let's get it in Russian. And I was like no we're not getting tattoos that's ridiculous but of course then when he died he had the last laugh we had to go and get the tattoo so I've got Russian written on my forearm um, of brothers in arms and I can't tell you the amount of times not just through my rugby career but since the accident I've looked at that it's somewhere where I can see it and it's given me the strength to carry on it it's made a massive difference so he might not be with us anymore in person but he's still massively helping me um through my journey so ed we are coming to the quick fire questions which i would love to ask you so who inspires you the most well seeing as we're just talking about him i think tom tom's up there yeah um for sure but I, apart from Tom, I, you know, I like to take inspiration from sort of everyone around me. I've been very lucky to meet some amazing people um, over my lifetime, and you know, since I since I've been injured as well, some of the people that have come come forward and I've become friends with, and I think everyone's got some inspiration to give each other. And if we go into every engagement with even strangers, looking to be inspired by them, it opens up the way we enter every conversation, and it's more likely that you will be. Having said that, I think I'd have to say my wife Lois is um, definitely one of the most inspirational people to me because of the way she makes me live my life. Like I want to be the best I can be for her and for us. And I wanted throughout my time in hospital, you know, I wanted to get better for her more than anyone. And I wanted to give her the wedding she'd always dreamed of. As you said, we were engaged when I got injured. So I think she inspires me the most. And did you get to have your wedding? Yeah, we did. We cancelled We cancelled the wedding because it was supposed to be happening a year later when I was in hospital. And then when I started standing after about five months, we called it back on and we were like, even if you have to prop, prop you up at the altar. But we assumed that the wedding venue would have given the wedding away, the, event, the dates away in Italy because we didn't even tell them why we were cancelling. But we rang them and they said to rearrange for a different date. And they said, uh, we, we saw what was happening and we've kept the dates free just in case. So it went ahead as planned in the end. Although it was summer in Italy and it ended up being 30 degrees on the day and I've got serious temperature regulation issues. So I nearly passed out at the (laughs) altar. But it was, um, no, it was amazing. It was an amazing, uh, amazing celebration. Um, Obviously not just of 
us as a couple but the the last you know the room was full of everyone that had been there for both of us over the what we'd been through in the last year so it it was an amazing amazing day and what is the book in your life that has given you courage um I mentioned The Obstacle is the Way, Ryan Holiday, which is all about stoicism. That was very formative for me early on and a philosophy that I've read a lot more into and follow quite closely. The other one would be Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, it's amazing. I love that one. Yeah, Viktor Frankl. I think just the message that if you can find purpose, you can find meaning and it doesn't matter what your situation is um, outside of that. It's an incredible book and you've clearly read it and so you'll understand why I'm... (laughs) why I like it so much. What is something that has improved your life? This could be a habit or a routine. I think staying away from negativity and reframing things, like I mentioned before, you know, that glass half full attitude of maybe it was a subconscious thing at the start, this defence mechanism. But actually, I think a big example of it was during the start of the pandemic last year and we were in lockdown and everyone just seemed to be waiting for the death toll on the news every evening. I feel like we've only got a certain amount of bandwidth in our brains to deal with. And if you fill it with negativity, you know, spending time around people that sap energy from you rather than give it to you, listening to the news too much when it's pumping out the bad news stories all the time, we don't leave much room for positive energy. And I think now I'm quite ruthless with my time and attention with the people I hang around with because I realise that life's too short, that... I've got this amazing network of positive people that give me a lot of energy. I don't focus on the news and the negative things that are going on and I'm in a better place for it. And I think that's sort of become a very useful habit and one that can be learnt, I feel, and trained. And what would you do if you were not afraid? I think I might let go of some things. What I'm afraid of at the moment is the plates I'm spinning are all great plates that I want to keep spinning but actually if I was brave enough I would probably double down on one or two of them to really do them justice but I'm too scared to let go of the others in case it was the wrong plate to let go of. And I guess it's that decision making isn't it like oh what if I make the wrong decision or make that choice and then then I realise later down the line it's wrong but I think ultimately the choice that you make whatever is that is the choice that you're supposed to make is what I I tell myself anyway and you'll never know what the result would have been if you did the other one anyway (laughs) so it can't be a wrong decision but it still doesn't mean I'm brave (laughs) yeah but it still doesn't mean I'm brave enough to do it (laughs) yeah thanks to Ed Jackson for joining me on the podcast Next week, I'll be speaking to Executive Director of Women for Women International UK, Britta Fernanda Schmidt. Keep up to date by liking, reviewing and subscribing to Fear Itself on your favourite podcast app. I always love to hear from my listeners. Let me know what you think about the show, if you've been inspired by any of the conversations or simply just get in touch to tell me a bit about you. You can find me on Instagram. You've been listening to Fear Itself, presented by me, Cresta Bonus. This podcast was produced by One Fine Play. Executive producer is James Bishop. Editorial producer and editor is Ollie Giyu. Additional creative support from Selena Christophidis, Louise Berry, Jessica Williams, Emily Weller and Connor Foley. With music by Malt Martin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>